Hello and welcome to this interview special episode of Tech EU podcast. I am your host, Andre Daigler, and today we are going to talk about fintech and that we're going to do from both the entrepreneurial and the VC sides of things. To cover this topic comprehensively, we have had great conversations with two incredibly interesting speakers, Michael Kent, the co-founder of Azimo, and Tara Reeves, partner at Omers Ventures Europe. Now, let us listen first to the VC perspective, and along the way, we will learn why OMERS actually is spelled in all caps and what it stands for. So, hey, this is Robin Walters from Tech.eu, joined here remotely, of course, from the UK by Tara Reeves, who is a partner at OMERS Ventures. OMERS Ventures, maybe not the best known uh, investment firm here in Europe, so I'll give you a chance to sort of explain who you are, but also what the, what the investment firm does. Thanks very much, Robin, and thanks for having me. Uh, for those of you listening, OMERS stands for the Ontario Municipal Employee Retirement System. It's one of these gigantic Canadian pension plans that looks after the retirement of half a million Canadians who work for the Ontario government. Uh, so there's anything from the police, the fire service, to municipal workers, librarians, and uh, unusually for a pension plan this size, um, with over 100 billion of investable assets, OMERS is pretty much entirely a direct investing organization. So they're not a fund of funds and they, they are direct investors in capital markets, in property and infrastructure, private equity. And as of 10 years ago, they made an allocation to venture. And it's been fantastic. It's been a, a great success both in uh, Canada and in North America more broadly, uh, specifically the Valley. And so 18 months ago, they decided to make an allocation to European venture, and they hired me and my partners to deploy that capital here. And so the best way to think of us is as a venture fund with one major LP, who is Omas. We are investing at Series A and Series B in European tech businesses. And our team is composed of people who've been in the tech ecosystem, mostly in London for a long time. And so we're really excited to be in a position to make investments here that, that you know, ultimately are going to benefit people who might not normally have access to venture as an asset class. Makes a lot of sense. And that's a brilliant primer on what Omer's Ventures does, uh, but it left out a little bit of your personal background. So maybe can you fill us out a little bit on, <laughs> on what you've done in the past? I first came to tech as a student at the Harvard Business School when one of my classmates had this idea that we could uh, rent each other's cars. So let me rephrase by saying that I had come from Europe. I didn't have, I couldn't rent a car in the US, you know, but but it's it like Boston, it's like super cold, didn't want to walk anywhere. This was pre-Uber, like no taxis, easily callable or accessible in, in Boston. And for those of you who've been in a Boston cab, it's a pretty horrendous experience. So my my co-founder at Toro is a guy called Shelby, said to me one day, hey, Tara, you know, I have this idea. We're going to, we, we, you know, can you help me figure this out? Because I had come from an insurance background. Uh, can you help me figure out how to insure these cars while, you know, we're renting them off each other's classmates? And, you know, this was back in, in 2008. You know, Facebook had started on the Harvard campus. This idea of real trust within this ecosystem. And I sort of said, sure, I can help you insure these cars because I had come from Aon and Wachovia Insurance Services. And it proved to be a little bit more complicated than that. But um, fast forward today, the business is a unicorn and, you know, it, it has had I had want to make sure that I'm not talking out of school here. You know, I think it's it's rented over its its millionth car. Uh, and so this is my my first exposure to tech there. And I think this is fantastic and this is what I want to do with my life. I'm definitely not going back to an insurance company after I graduate. 
Uh, and then I, I fell afoul of the um, U.S. immigration, uh, which, as you guys know, is, is a behemoth you have to take quite seriously. And so um, after a couple of years, I had to come back to the U.K. And while I was here, I was like, oh, I've got to go and work for a startup. Like, I'm just I'm not going to. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go back to the large corporate. And I went to work for a company called Wonga.com, which, as some of you guys may know, was at the time the fastest growing uh, startup that had ever been in Europe. It's sort of an early fintech. Uh, imploded pretty massively a couple of years ago, uh, but a fantastic learning experience. And while I was there, I met a man called Robin Klein, who had been one of the early investors and you know, is a huge figure in European tech. And when I left Wonga, I was looking for a job. And he said to me, well, look, why don't you come and see if you like the investment side of things? And I, I thought I would do it for a year or two. We're now six years on, and uh, uh, here I am. Yeah, and you, I remember you joined uh, his firm called Local Globe, um, you know, doing your first investments in European tech. Uh, but I want to get back to uh, Tora and your operational experience that you've built up uh, during Wonga. Um, are you still involved in Tora at all? Because you, as you correctly point out, it's a unicorn. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So are you still involved in it? Uh, no. In fact, none of the original co-founders are um, in any meaningful sense. You know, uh, so I am still a shareholder. It feels a bit like having a lottery ticket, honestly. Uh, you know, I hope I hope that they they do something magnificent one day. It was a huge satisfaction to see them launch in uh, in London, you know, a couple of years ago. But no, I mean, I haven't been involved day to day with them for God of we now for about uh, for about eight or eight years or so. But it, it has given you some insights into a company mm-hmm. that really oh, yeah, scales. Yeah. So the early days, right? The early days of setting up the first fundraising and yeah. what it means to become a product manager, which is how I fell into what I think is the coolest job in tech, which is product. And then, you know, a really credible experience to go and, and work at Wonga and, and do some product management there, which I love. And that experience in turn, I think, has really shaped me as an investor because looking at cohort data, looking at how users behave when they're interacting with the product um, is one of the key ways that I make a decision about how to invest. For sure. Now, how do you describe your role at Omer's Ventures today? Do you have any particular sectoral focus, geographical focus, or or stage focus? Like, What is it that you do? So, so we're a Series A and Series B fund. I'd, I'd say our sweet spot in, in Europe was checks of about, you know, five to 10 million. Obviously, always easier to stretch that model sort of at the earlier end than at the, than at the bigger end. I'd say that our, our, you know, our smallest check has been two and our biggest check has been 20. We like to look at what we call consequential businesses, which I know sounds a bit, bit naff, but I'd say, you know, our sort of three core areas are fintech, health tech, and, and what we had been calling future of cities, but we need a snappier title for it. And it's a slightly romantic idea that our ultimate stakeholders are municipal workers, the people in the city, and, and how they, you know, the future of their work, the future of their mobility, the, the future of, of how they interact with the world is something that we would like them to, to have a stake in the future of. And so it's a slightly more amorphous category, but uh, it's one that we care deeply about. And of course, while we're absolutely not a corporate venture fund in any sense of the word, we can invest in, in you know precisely what we like. You, you know, like like all investors, we want to be more than just money. And given Omis's broader portfolio, both in property and in infrastructure, for you know, for you know, they they own they own ports and airports and utilities and commercial buildings and residential buildings and sort of real meaningful assets, we find that a certain type of entrepreneur who is sort of interacting with the physical world uh, is, is keen to um, to us and we're keen to them, I should add, as well. 
<laughs> That's uh, quite fascinating. I was also reading up on uh, on the latest fund that was raised by Omers. I think it was uh, earlier this year. Uh, you closed a 750 million fund. And I was reading the announcement where it said, we're focusing on companies based in the US. And I quote, in the US, in Canada, UK, and Europe, raising A to C financing. Uh, and that to me seemed like, a, like an extremely, extremely broad scope because it's almost impossible to sort of cover all these territories really in depth uh, when you go you know, this broad in sectors as well. Uh, a to C is, of course, also quite a wide range, depending on where you are. In the US, that means a different thing than it does in Europe. Uh, so how do you actually, as a fund, manage to do all of those things? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think it's important to note that we have um, sort of three main offices. So one in the Valley, one in Toronto, and one in London, from which the London team covers Europe. Obviously, the, the other guys uh, cover North America. And so it's very much the case that if a great opportunity in the US you know, came across my desk because for some reason it was a European founder or something, um, I would pass it on to my colleagues. But we, we have a shared set of incentives uh, that's sort of quite cleverly designed to, to foster that sort of partnership. I think you know, that a lot of entrepreneurs in Europe who are keen to move over to the US will welcome, hopefully, our sort of capital that can help them make that jump. Uh, and, and conversely, and North American companies that want to come to Europe, because there are relatively few transatlantic funds. Uh, there are some, but uh, but not many. And so, you know, we really hope to be able to bring that uh, as another arrow to our quiver. Yeah, I can definitely see the value in this international and transatlantic expansion. Uh, but when you say Europe, does that mean you scout for opportunities the same way in Moldova and Lithuania and Portugal as you do in the UK and France and Germany? So, I mean, no, is a short answer. I'm going to give you the slightly longer answer, though. Some some ecosystems we, certainly before COVID, used to travel to more often. To be clear, we'd be in Germany and, and Paris once a month, uh, you know, in Iberia, probably once a quarter. It's really interesting. COVID has been a pretty extraordinary opportunity, actually, to cover more of those territories because you're not having to get on a plane and it's much easier to schedule a call like this. So so that's been really positive. It's also made trusted relationships that much more important because you can't go out and meet people as easily. And so I'm getting off on a slight tangent here, but it, it you know I found that COVID has made it quite hard for people who are just starting in VC because the traditional model of sort of the, the slightly more established VCs who've got their relationships, who've got their board relationships, who've done their deals, sort of not wanting to go out, you know, sort of three evenings a week and, and, and making space for the young guard who are, you know, out together and socializing and talking about things. And, you know, and they've got like their, their, their WhatsApp gossip groups and so on. That's just harder for them, right? If you're just starting a job today. And, and it has, so as I say, it, it, it is a tricky one and something that I am thinking about as we, as, you know, as we onboard more junior members. But as I say, I've slightly gone off on a tangent. Uh, it, it has meant that these trusted relationships are, are more and more important um, on the one hand. On the other hand, we've developed this pretty cool um, data and signals tool to, to give us an insight into uh, ecosystems where we can't be there. And, and it, you know, it doesn't replace old-fashioned kind of reputation and relationships and knocking on doors, but it does target where we look. And I, I, I can't say too much about it because we're still tweaking it around the edges, but but it has led to one investment already. So so it is working in that sense. And, uh, and it's really, really cool. And I want to tell you more about it um, when I can. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about it at some point when you have a 
sort of uh, polished it a little bit more. But from what I understand, your focus uh, within Omers is more on the fintech side of things, obviously because of your, your past experience, but also I gather from your, your interest in these things. Fintech, of course, in Europe, uh, one of the biggest sectors uh, where most of the funding goes to with lots of attention. Uh, also quite a broad scope, ranging from B2B to B2C to payments to loans. Uh, so what is it that, that makes you interested in it and, and what gets you most excited about investing in, in future entrepreneurs in this space? So first of all, I love it. I just do. I find it endlessly fascinating. And I'm so I'm always happy to talk to somebody about it and in hear from entrepreneurs about what they're doing. And I think the way the way people spend money is deeply uh, revealing of their choices in life. And it should be frictionless and it's not. Um, so, so I think, you know, it comes, it has to come from a genuine interest and passion, right? You just, and I think that the, the best investors who, you know, they, they find a sector that they love and they, they, they go really deep on it, uh, and, and they think kind of thematically about the world. So that kind of just genuinely, I enjoy it. It's just, it's just interesting. <laughs> um, where I have been spending more time lately is in capital markets fintech, which traditionally hasn't had the same kind of investment as the rest of fintech. And, and, you know, it's fascinating to me that, you know, you have these sort of incredibly sort of high tech, sort of high frequency traders, these hedge funds that are, you know, sort of going bare metal and trying to win, you know, that half second advantage on their trading. And they're, they're thinking about tech in this really, really sort of deep way. And then you literally have capital markets players who are operating off spreadsheets and they're, they're deciding on anything from, from de-allocations to, to loan books, you know, in a way that is, uh, and, and, you know, doing compliance in ways that feel, that feel like they, they haven't changed, you know, since the eighties. And so, you know, traditionally this, the sector has, um, has struggled to raise uh, from VCs. I think for three reasons, one, they frankly haven't needed to, right? So, so if you're if you're a senior at a bank and you've you've sort of made a pile, uh, you're probably well connected to other people. You've made a pile. You 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 tend to raise from angels and from people you know, and you sort of just bypass this ecosystem entirely. You know, I have strong views on why you shouldn't raise from from uh, necessarily from from that type of capital because I think that um, it, it is interesting to be in this VC pool uh, if you, if you can. Uh, two, like this stuff is hard, right? Like it's just difficult to understand. And, and you know, everyone in the world has had a bank account. I said, gosh, I shouldn't say that. Please scrub it. Most people in the world have a bank account. Most people in the UK and in Europe have, have had a loan or have at least thought about buying a house. Uh, most, most of us can imagine what it's like to be an SMB and the types of things that we need. It's very, very hard to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's in the, in the bowels of the, of the capital market stack. But... I, I feel very strongly that the next few years we're going to see a new wave of innovation there in the same way that we've seen it in first in retail, then in SME. And now I think the uh, investment bank is going to uh, see some um, some kind of nibbling at its more profitable areas. Great. Well, it's nice to see uh, all the passion you have for the, the fintech space here in Europe on that front. But uh, do you think uh, the fintech sector in Europe also has an edge? Like what, what, what makes it so special and why is all this you know, funding and attention being given to that specific industry? So I want to unpick that question a little bit, because I think normally we have seen this wave of innovation primarily coming from from the US in, in many sectors, not all, but many. But if you take a look at the US banking sector, it is it is an order of magnitude worse than the European 
and South American banking sector from just to begin with, right? And and so you know they don't have faster payments. Um, there's still a lot of a lot of transactions that are done by check. ACH takes three days. Um, you know the reason Venmo is incredibly successful there that allowed you know basically instant payments. There was never a use case for it in Europe because all the banks had faster payments already. And so, you know, I'm constantly struck by businesses that that are launched in the US and you look at it and you think, gosh, and you know, it becomes huge. And then you think, but this this already exists. I can get it from my, my, you know, my Barclays or my, my NatWest app. And so so I think that unusually Europe has an advantage already, not just because of regulation, but because the underlying banking infrastructure works, like SEPA works, faster payments works. And so this allows uh, a layer of innovation across a, a core infrastructure that is, is is already much more competent. And so um, it's just harder, right? To, it's just harder to start a fintech kind of in, in, in the US because the things you want to do are, are less possible. That also opens up huge opportunities there. So so as I say, I think um, that the, the, the underlying tech infrastructure in this particular sector is 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 better and then of course you have a very a principles based rather than rules based regulator who's really approachable any fintech that wants to go and talk to the fca can go and talk to the fca uh, you know they have outreach programs it's just it's just easier and then of course the final the final piece of the puzzle there i think is that the potential returns are so huge right so it's a sector that are, that attracts the most investment but if you look at the sort of the state of European fintech report last year, you'll see that it's also the one that's returned the most. Uh, and so it's sort of not surprising that it would attract the funding that it does. And then the question becomes, is it going to stay that way, of course? Or... Oh, gosh, uh, I, I wish I had a crystal ball. Look, in a COVID world, any business that uh, has sustained and profitable growth is going to, to struggle. I think, you know, the days of growth at all cost not over, but but potentially problematic here. Um, I do think that the companies will continue to attract funding. It is my experience that the best deals, there's a bit of a feeding frenzy around the best deals where there's lots of capital trying to get in and the companies that are, you know, not struggling, but are, are just finding it somewhat longer and harder going are, are going to suffer. We know we have lots of entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, so I'm going to ask you a question that I ask to most investors. Uh, what would be the advice you have for budding entrepreneurs, um, especially first-time uh, founders, when they get into the room with you and they pitch you for investment? What are some of the things that you like to hear? What are some of the things that they need to take into account? And do they address the whole COVID situation, yes or not? Yes, they should address the COVID situation uh, because they'll be asked questions about it. So it'd be foolish for them not to. I think that if you can get a warm intro to an entrepreneur, it's it's always a good thing. And I, I don't say this lightly because I know that for underrepresented founders who might not, you know, have gone to the same universities or had a network or been to an accelerator or so on, it's just that much harder to get an introduction. Uh, and so it should not be a gating factor, right? But, you know, particularly... Uh, an introduction from an entrepreneur who the fund has backed before. That's Those are the introductions I take the most seriously because I think, gosh, well, we've backed this founder. They know what's involved. If they're recommending this person, they must be great. And, you know, those are the introductions I always, always make time for. You know, and, and conversely, you know, try and avoid try and avoid bankers and placement agents when you're a first-time funder. I know it's really tempting when you haven't done it before, but, um, you know, investors want to talk to you. They don't want to talk to uh, an advisor at this early stage. That's obviously not true for later on. Um, and then once, you know, once you've kind of made it through the initial couple of meetings and if you're being asked to the partner meeting, 
it's really important, I think, to find out who you, you know, to, and to remember who your champion is in the room. So if at this point, the, the investor that you're talking to, if I've, if I, you know, if I think, oh, this is a great idea and I'm going to take it forward, in a sense, I'm in the hot seat with you because I'm trying to persuade my partners that they should, you know, commit this capital. And so at that point, the, the, the partner or the associate principal, whoever you're talking to the fund is really on your side and, and sort of help building that relationship where you, you, you are together trying to, um, to convince the wider team, I think is important rather than seeing that as adversarial is the wrong way. But but at that point, they're convinced and they're trying to help you. And so it's important to strategize with those guys. How are you going to get? Just curious, do, do you see this as a good thing or do you see this as a limitation of the whole partnership structure of VC fund, which is oftentimes being, you know, this needs to evolve. This is a thing from the past, the way that investment decisions are made. Like, how, how do you look at that personally? So I think a requirement to have a unanimous decision is a bad thing, unquestionably, because the data has shown that the, the companies where people have a sort of a strong views either way tend to fail more, but they also tend to succeed more. Whereas companies where everyone's like, oh, yeah, that seems like a good idea, they tend to do well, but they, they don't tend to do as well. So, so I do feel quite strongly that, that if you have a partnership structure, then you do need to allow room for dissent, whether that's simple majority or, you know, maybe every year one of the partners gets a silver bullet. I think those are discussions that happen internally among trust. Look, I do think it's it's important to be able to build conviction in other people, right? Because I don't think, you know, I don't love the idea of your single bullet because if you can't convince anyone else around a table who trusts you and who know you that, this company should raise money, like it's going to be a struggle for them to raise the next round, let's face it, right? And so, so, so you know, I love this idea of like, I, I had belief and I invested against all the odds and like, you know, we stood shoulder to shoulder and I was like, yes, this is going to be a success. And 99 times out of 100, if you couldn't convince anybody else that this was, a, a, you know, this was worth doing. And remember in venture, we expect to write off half our bets, right? So, so, so even under that, you couldn't convince somebody that this was going to be a you know, a, a sort of a unicorn idea, then I think you you may be setting yourself up for trouble for the next funding round. So I don't know if I've given you a proper answer here. You know, I think the rise of single GP funds are really cool because it cuts down through a lot of this process. Somebody can just, like, you just have to convince me, I'm the check writer, like, you know, this, and, and, and so those lend themselves really well to angels and these super angels, right, who now are writing really meaningful checks and competing with seed funds. So I think at that stage, um, they're really, really good. I think at later stages, though, the partnership model still has a lot of, to recommend to it. And, and, you know, frankly, it's not just the partnership, right? It's the ops team. It's all the other help that a VC firm like Irma's, for instance, and others can bring, you know, PR and HR and recruiting. And these things, um, you know, these things are beyond the scope of any single partner, I think. Uh, and, you know, I certainly rely on, on my partners to make introductions uh, and vice versa. Uh, for, for the portfolio companies I'm working with. Yeah, I think that's very insightful commentary. And uh, if you haven't listened yet, this is both for you and the listeners. Uh, I also interviewed uh, Matthias Lungmann from, you know, Exotomico now, Moonfire. Uh, he's a single GP, but he also sort of sees himself questioning whether that's really a good idea or whether to bring a, a board partner at some point, because it has limitations on both sides, of course. Uh, that's just the way things go. Um, and maybe just uh, because we're, we're, we're about to wrap up before we really uh, take too much uh, time for, uh, for our listeners, but if you look at the European tech landscape now, 
on the European VC landscape. What would you like to see changed? Like, what, what are some of the things that are really problematic that you think are a barrier to scale, both from an ecosystem perspective and an investment perspective? I'd like to see more female angels. I'd like to see more angels in general, but I'm involved in uh, a couple of organizations that I, I feel passionately about. Uh, female founders and VCs, which I helped to set up at Local Globe, which um, encourages female VCs in London and to meet early stage entrepreneurs who may not have this network, who may not be able to access this warm intro. Also, Alma Angels, which was uh, set up by um, uh, Ellie Goldner at Zinc and David Fogel from, uh, from was at ADV and a few of us. Uh, well, I say a few, it's now, I gosh, it's probably 100, 100 angels now who are investing in female founders uh, at the early stage. And and so, um, you know, and it's not just about women, it's about underrepresented founders, like this huge, huge talent uh, that is um, that is being underrepresented because, again, this warm intro problem uh, in, in VC. And so uh, I don't have a good answer uh, on how we solve it, except to you know, to do what I can. As I say, these organizations I feel strongly about. But, I, you know, I always thought that you had to have a lot of money to be an angel and actually entrepreneurs, you know, I, I, I've never written an angel check, I think, to date that's sort of been more than um, more than £5,000. And uh, and it's still, it's you know, it, it still worked and uh, entrepreneurs have been happy to have the money. And so anyway, it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be hundreds of thousands of pounds. So um, I would encourage people to, you know, to give back if they can. You know, certainly in the UK, the tax breaks for doing it are, are really terrific. I, I hope they last. Uh, <laughs> Um, so yeah great well it's interesting to me that you mentioned female angels before you said female founders uh, which I think is a very important part of the equation because you don't just want female entrepreneurs you also want like underrepresented investors backing these companies I think so and you know and I guess it brings you back to another another piece and sorry I know I know um, that I'm I'm sorry the last bit which is um, you know getting getting women in particular but any startup employed to understand the importance of equity. I think that we haven't done a great job in the European ecosystem to make people understand how valuable their options are. You know, they see this thing, you know, this, this option that's valued at like 10, 10, 10 pence a share, and I think it's worth 10 pence. Like it's not. And as a board member, I've run a bunch of sessions at at portfolio companies to explain how options work um, without the management. So employees can just ask me like the, the you know, and, and I have written a blog post on the subject if anyone's interested on when you should have options or restricted stock. And, you know, these are huge wealth creators if things go well. And so that, that derive you know, that makes the next generation of entrepreneurs sure, also the next generation of angels. And so I, I just, I feel really, really strongly that, that people should know they can negotiate these option packages when they join, that they're valuable, that they shouldn't leave them on the table. And that when, when you're thinking about the pay gap, whether that's a gender pay gap, whether that's race or disability or, or sort of any form of discrimination, uh, it's not just about the salaries. That, that's also true with equity. And, and in, in our world, you know, we, we've got to make sure people know know that this is something they need to keep an eye on. Fantastic. Well, employee ownership and stock options really, really big topic that I think we should address in a in a separate call one day. But uh, yeah, also quite quite problematic that is different across Europe. Like uh, you know, owning stock options in Germany is a completely different thing to owning stock options in the UK, of course. Yeah, and it's it's just it's just nuts, right? I I don't have a good answer for that, but it's it's um it's something that I just, I know that a lot of like young, young people who want to go and work at a startup might not necessarily know how to value or think about. 
Yeah, and I know there's an uh, organization or at least like a movement started by, uh, I think it was Index Ventures and a couple of other uh, funds called notoptional.eu. So if you want to learn more about this topic, uh, dear listener, please go check it out because this is a really problematic thing in Europe that I think needs to be solved. So uh, thank you so much for pointing it out again. Uh, Tara, I can't thank you enough for your time. It's very insightful. It's been a pleasure. And all the best uh, of luck with uh, Omer's Ventures in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Now, that's a brilliant interview. Huge thanks to Tara for coming on the show and to Robin for recording this one. Now, next up is a conversation that one of its participants described as, quote-unquote, two old guys talking on a podcast. Of course, that's not true at all. Uh, we have actually got the always young Robin Wouters interviewing the even younger Michael Kent, co-founder of Azimo and Tandem Bank. Hey, this is Robin Waters from Tech.eu, and I'm joined here remotely, of course, this time from North London by Michael Kent. He is the founder and chairman of a company called Azimo, which helps people essentially move money around. Michael, thank you so much for joining our podcast and maybe give us a little bit of background because you've been in the fintech scene in the UK for longer than the word fintech has been around. So you have quite an interesting history as an entrepreneur. So maybe just walk us through your uh, your background a little bit. Hi. Um, oh, well, thanks for having me on. Um, and uh, nice to be talking to you. Uh, I guess, yeah, that, that makes me sound very old. I'm not sure I'm happy with that um, characterization of of being around since before um, the word fintech was about. But yeah, no, so I started off, um, I was a management consultant and then I was working on um, M&A in, in a couple of uh, sort of big traditional companies in the media sector. And then um, in 2005, uh, myself and my business partner, a guy called Ricky Knox, decided that actually there was a lot more interesting stuff going on in the financial services sector, particularly in consumer financial services. Um, so we felt that, that actually a lot of customers were, were being badly served and a lot of people were making a lot of money by badly serving those customers. So we, we kind of felt that there was some, you know, some interesting opportunities in the space. We, we actually called it sort of consumer-focused or retail financial technology. So, so we didn't quite get the word right. Um, I'm not quite sure who came up with the word fintech, but it's definitely one that stuck. I wish it had been us. And then since then, we've, we've set up a, a number of companies, all with a common theme of trying to use technology to improve the, the consumer outcomes. So either make money cheaper in the case of Tandem or more convenient to use um, to make sending money overseas in the case of Asimo. Um, yeah, it's, it's just there are, there are lots of opportunities when you, when you actually start using technology uh, to improve customer outcomes. And, and that's kind of been the guiding force of, of everything we've done in the sector over the last 15 years. Yeah, that 15 years, that is quite a long time, isn't it? So there you go. <laughs> now I'm feeling old. Well, it's almost as long as I've been covering technology, so I uh, I feel the the age thing as well. So couple I'm of, in the same couple, couple of old guys talking on a podcast. <laughs> well, maybe some young people listening. Maybe uh, we can help uh, help them a little bit in their journey. But but like in 2005, I don't think it was that obvious, uh, especially not in Europe, to sort of um, look at technology uh, being able to disrupt the big financial institutions and the banks. You, you make it sound like it was such an uh, an evident thing to do, but but was it really? Like 15 years ago, was it really that evident? Um, well, things were very different. So, so our first um, sort of, well, we, we made a bunch of investments um, and, and we did quite a lot of work in foreign exchange. And then our sort of first significant venture was something called Small World Financial Services. And actually, that was a buy and build. So we we raised um, we raised equity from investors and we bought a whole series of companies and, and put them together. 
And actually, it probably wasn't um, obvious to us that technology would be the key part part of the equation there. But actually, as we bought all these businesses, we found out that when we were buying them, the the technology was tended to be uh, pretty poor. I'm trying to think of the right word and not swear on your podcast, but yeah, it wasn't particularly good technology. Um, and actually, if you could get that technology piece right, you had a very strong competitive advantage against you know other players in the market. So whilst it wasn't obvious to us, and when we were and when we were actually raising money. It wasn't the technology that the investors focused on. And actually, back in those days when we were raising, there were probably three or four early stage funds in the UK. Uh, and we managed to raise money from a couple of them. It, it wasn't anything like the sort of profusion of seed and Series A funds that you see across Europe now. So times were very different. And the focus was, was, was you know, as it is today still, I guess it was on management teams. It was also on business economics and, and businesses tended to be much more evolved and have much higher revenue before you could go out and get VC capital. So that's changed a lot. But um, yeah, it was it was interesting to us as, as we sort of went through the process of, of buying companies and transforming them that technology was the most important part. And I guess um, that's that's something that everyone believes now. But uh, yeah, 15 years ago, it was it was quite hard to get um, investors to spend you know millions of dollars on unproven technology. I remember actually um, having an interesting conversation with one of our financial backers way back in uh, 2009 and saying, you know, I want to build I want to build an app because I think that's the way forward. It's going to cost a couple of million bucks, and they were horrified at, the, uh, at this idea. You know, these days you'd be having a very different conversation with those guys. Yeah, fortunately so. Uh, just so you know, this is the kind of podcast where you can swear without consequences. Oh, so okay, great. Okay, I'll get yeah. my I'll get my worst swear words out as soon as I can. <laughs> Thanks a lot. But but I guess your your main focus these days is still on uh, Asimo, which is you know an online uh, money transfer service. Can you maybe walk us through the history of that company? Why was it founded? Uh, when and who by? And you know, your, maybe your, some of the funding history as well. Sure. So um, Asimo was. Really a, a response to, so we, we owned um, and we built up a, a large traditional money transfer company. And like I say, we bought, we bought um, I think we bought 14 companies in, in about six years um, and, and put them all together on a common platform. But they were very traditional. So the customers were still going to a high street location, handing over cash, getting a receipt, and the money was popping out on the other end. And we thought we did it. We did it pretty well, you know. We built. I think it was. Uh, it's. It's still a global top five player. So taking it from from nothing to that was, you know, we, we felt we'd done well. But what we did see was, and there were a couple of companies. Uh, there was a company called Zoom in um, San Francisco. A couple of other companies that were starting to say, well, what would the digital reimagination of of this business be like? And so being good sort of M&A guys, and my background's always been in corporate finance and M&A, uh, I looked around for companies to buy that would sort of give us that capability, uh, would have that sort of digital DNA and allow us to really reimagine a, a sort of high street, rather like Amazon has reimagined um, buying books and now buying pretty much anything. Uh, we were thinking about how how could you reimagine sending money a- across borders in a, in a wholly digital environment. And I just couldn't find anyone to to buy. There was literally no one out there. Uh, I knew Ishmael a little bit from World Remit, um, but aside from his company, there was there was kind of nothing. And so, you know, we just decided to build it ourselves. So in um, 2012, set the business up, sort of very much the MVP model of, of putting together some 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 basic technology, testing the market, seeing whether people would um, would actually use and pay for something like this. And I think we we 
In many ways, we got lucky because we were hitting just as the sort of smartphone penetration rates were were rocketing. Um, we were hitting as as more and more people. Migration was very very strong. Uh, continues to be very strong, actually, but it was very, very strong in those sort of five or six years after we set the company up. So more and more people coming into Europe and wanting to send money home to their families. And yeah, that's the, so set it up in 2012. We did our first transactions, just coming up to our eighth birthday, actually. I think we did our, our first transactions about the same time as my, my son was born. He's, um, he's eight years old in a couple of weeks time. So he's almost exactly the same age as, as Asimo in terms of a trading business. And then, yeah, we, it's, it's, it's been good. We started off in a single corridor, UK to Poland. Uh, my, my CTO when I started was, uh, was Polish. So, um, that seemed like a natural place to start. There were lots of poles in the UK. Uh, and these days we send from 27 markets to, uh, I think 196, trying to get it over 200. And yeah, we send several billion dollars a year. So it's, it's, it's been a nice story of scaling. Of course, it's been, you know, it's been a lot of hard work. Um, and there's a, an awful lot of people who, you know, can, can take the credit for making Asimo what it is today. Yeah, I can imagine. You mentioned Poland, which I think is interesting. Do you still have the majority of your tech staff there? Because I read that somewhere, uh, that most of your tech team is in Krakow. Yes, so we operate out of three hubs, um, Amsterdam, Krakow, and London, just setting up offices in some other jurisdictions outside of Europe as well. And yeah, so our, our biggest function is is in um, is in Poland. We have our technology team, we have our operations team, and we have our customer support team all in there. And actually, I, I love I love building technology out of Krakow. It has some you know some of the most talented developers. I'd argue anywhere, but certainly in in Europe, some great technical colleges. In on the customer support side, it's it's a big student town, so we have loads of really talented, well educated, uh, multilingual staff. Yeah, it's actually just a beautiful city and a nice place to you know build a career. So yeah, uh, Krakow has been very good for us. I would say maybe too good because um, it's it's not escaped our notice that lots of other uh, fintech companies have set up a uh, shop in the in the town as well. But you know, I can't begrudge that too much that that we've sort of trailblazed into an ecosystem in that part of the world. Yeah, interesting, and I love the city indeed. You're making me miss travel even more. Uh, but um, you, and you, I'm sure you get this question quite a lot. So I'm sorry if you uh, if you get tired of answering it. But uh, in in which way are you similar to the likes of World Remit, which which you've already mentioned? There's of course TransferWise. There's a number of, of other companies coming up in this space. You know, trying to make it easy for for, for people to move money around. Um, so how how are you different? How do you differentiate against those? I guess it's easier to differentiate us from from somebody like TransferWise, um, just in terms of the sort of the, the customers' uh, focus that we that we have. Um, we're very much about sending money from uh, developed to developing, emerging. Um, or, or sort of more exotic parts of the world. So TransferWise's focus has historically been, I guess, white-collar workers um, sending larger value transactions. I don't have their numbers, but we've, we've got a reasonably good idea that the sort of average transaction for them is five or six times the size of for us. Um, for, for Asimo, it's about between 200 and 450 uh, euros is the average transaction size. So uh, tend to be a lot smaller. For somebody like World Remit, um, I guess we're, we're, we're pretty similar. We're very much focused on the European market in terms of our send region. So I think those guys have, have sort of focused on going UK, 
and then English-speaking countries, particularly America, which I gather is their, their largest um, sending country now. Um, we've been very much thought that what's broken in money transfer has been the European opportunity. You know, big, big markets, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, tens of billions of dollars of flow, each of them. And they've always been poorly addressed because traditionally the people who've been in this market, the Western unions and the MoneyGrams, have taken a sort of uh, a, a long, hard look at the US market, obviously being very strong in, in the UK, but much less good at, at actually serving customer needs in, in Europe. So we, we've always been, you know, uh, a European business. And I think that's what makes us different. We, we, we really are sort of the first player to really tackle the whole of the European market opportunity. We haven't gone to America, not saying that we won't ever, but we've just, we've decided to double down on Europe because we just felt that, you know, you want to go where the customers are, are having a bad time because that's where you're likely to be able to offer the most value. And we just, when we look at, yeah, like all of those countries, um, they just, they, they seem poorly served. And I, I would say it's probably not an easy option. You know, you have to put your, you have to handle lots of different currencies. So as well as the pounds and euros, we handle all the Scandinavian currencies and the Swiss franc. You have to obviously be able to offer, um, you know, your service in lots of different languages. It's, um, you, you don't have that problem if you're going to America. So, you know, the stack is currently working in nine languages and we're always looking to expand that. And you have to offer multilingual customer support. So, um, and then, of course, in different parts of the world, people pay in different ways. So the Germans don't like credit cards. The, the French tend to like carte bleue. The, um, you know, the, the, the Dutch tend to use something called ideal. So you, there's a lot more complexity in the stack. But we always felt that, you know, the, the sort of thing that made us different was just the European focus. Yeah. Well, it seems like one of these things that seems easy to solve until you actually try. And uh, then you just notice how complicated the market can be and how fragmented. Uh, on a side note, uh, TransferWise is actually re releasing some of its financial numbers tomorrow. We're recording this on Tuesday, so it's still under embargo, so I can't actually uh, talk about it yet, unfortunately. But you'll see those come in uh, after, after recording. Um, now, the... Other thing that you're maybe a bit less uh, known for, but it's it's still like a like a pretty well com company in the UK. Is that you also was a co-founder of a challenger bank called Tandem? What's the story there? How, how did that happen? Uh, so Ricky Knox is, um, I guess we like I say we met on the first day of INSEAD, which is a business school based outside of um, outside of Paris back in. Um, well, 2003. Um, and in 2005, we, we, we sort of started doing ventures together. And like I said, Small World was the, was the first one. As Ricky and I have a, you know, a, a joint shareholding in a, in a number of businesses, either as investors or, or as people who started them. And then when we were looking at interesting areas to, for digitization, a lot of roads end up in banking. And, you know, something that fintechs have potentially struggled to do is really take on core banking and um, consumer banking, and particularly the focus on lending. I think, um, you know, Tandem is different from some of the other challenger banks out there in that they're very focused on consumer lending, uh, be that credit cards or mortgages or third-party consumer lending. Because that's the whole, from my from from where I sit, uh, that's the real benefit of having a banking license is a, a low cost of wholesale funding. And, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, there's a lot of bad lending that happens out there that causes quite a lot of um, customer pain. But the, but the idea of technology being able to adjust for risk and price risk more effectively should mean that people can borrow money that they can afford to pay back uh, at lower prices. So I think that actually, from my, from my perspective, in, when I think of challenger banking, I think less about some of the, you know, the payment apps or the, 
um, or the sort of consumer functionality focused apps. So I think more about that as, as the big opportunity in challenger banking. Yeah, so Ricky, um, Ricky set that company up and um, I, I co-founded it with him. And yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting ride. I would say um, it's hard work setting up banks. They're they're highly regulated. Uh, they they're very expensive um, in terms of the technology and the the regulatory capacity that you need to build. But they um, you know they're very very interesting. I'm sure they are. I can follow your logic on on that payments are sort of a separate business from banking and lending in general. At the same time, it's very hard to decouple those. So. I guess it's a bit of a cheeky question, but didn't it make sense to sort of combine what you do with Tandem and what you do with Osimo into one platform and one one company, maybe? I mean, they're very separate businesses, actually. I think, is it hard to decouple payments and, and, and lending? I don't think so. I mean, you see some companies that are, which kind of have coupled them. If you look at Klarna or, or some of the big success um, stories in the buy now, pay later space. But broadly speaking, you know, financial services actually the, the biggest revenue component in financial services is obviously credit savings and loans um, but payments tends to be very very focused on and particularly for us it's point-to-point payments uh, one to two times a month uh four five hundred pounds the, the people who use us already have um access to reasonable banking services i'll tell you the the interesting thing is actually the difference between europe and the u.s um in many ways in in the u.s uh, you actually have a quite a big problem with a lot of people being excluded from the the banking sector. So there's, there's still lots of people in the US who don't have a a, a, a bank account or they have a, a prepaid card account. Uh, that's much less of a problem in in Europe. So even even in places like Italy, which is sort of historically has the lowest banking penetration, all of my customers there have bank accounts and they they tend to be you know well able to use a, a platform like Asimo. So I think that I think there's a bit of a difference between the between the two sectors. Also, we want people, you know, we don't want to hook Asimo just for people with a certain type of bank account. I think it's important that Asimo is, is for everyone. And we're, we're looking to, you know, make it as easy to pay with as many different ways to pay in as many different countries. So, you know, our focus there has been universality. At Tandem, the focus has been, you know, how do we take, you know, modern data, modern data analytics and actually lend money in a responsible way to people who can pay it back at a cheaper price than they would otherwise get from a from a less smart um, financial institution. It's it's kind of like two. I, I think they're related. I think the thing that probably does bind them together more than anything else is you need to build great software to do both, um, and you need to build great. You have to have great data capability, both storing and analyzing and interrogating that data. So that, that's kind of similar, but in terms of the sort of focus of the two companies, they're quite different. Yeah. And what about um, consolidation in the space that you operate in with Asimo? Um, you have a history uh, in M&A and uh, co- in corporate development. So so I'm sure you, you watch companies and you also watch this space uh, to see what's coming. Uh, can we expect um, companies like Asimo or TransferWise to take over smaller players uh, just to break into new markets, maybe um, you know boost the technical development and the teams uh, faster than they can organically? Or, or is that too far in the future? Yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting things you saw um, in the last couple of weeks has been World Remit just acquired a company called Sendwave, quite a small US to Africa specialist. So that was um, we don't see we don't see many M and A deals in consumer money transfer. Uh, obviously, we saw Zoom get acquired by PayPal, but that was a few years ago now. Um, so yeah, I think there's I think there's there's definitely um, both consolidation within the space, and I think 
you know, smaller players coming together to form bigger players or bigger players buying in capability, as you say, to, to allow them to expand more quickly or, or tackle a certain part of the world. That's definitely, I think everyone's talking to everyone. And, you know, sometimes a, a catalyst like the sort of difficult market that, that, COVID has meant for, for people who need to, who are either loss making or need to raise significant additional funds makes them more open to, you know, those kind of conversations than they might otherwise be. So I think that's definitely, that's definitely part of it. And then I think you'll probably, you'll see, you know, much larger financial services, broad based financial services players, be they either financial institutions like traditional banks or be they actually, um, you know, some of the more uh, digitally minded players. So people like Ant Financial bought World First, people like PayPal bought, bought Zoom. And then, you know, that's, you're going to see continue to see, you know, people want to get into to, to money transfer. And I think the interesting thing about the business I'm in is often, particularly on the receive side where people are receiving money, I am the very first financial touch point that people have in some of these emerging markets. And if you listen to the the sort of the big tech companies and the and the big financial services companies, everyone is very focused on getting the next million, the next ten million, the next hundred million customers, and they're not they're not going to come from North America and they're not going to come from uh, Northwest Europe. They're going to come in emerging markets, and I think the capability that we're building and the sort of democratization of of payments that we're allowing people to 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 do and, and receive money much more quickly and easily actually means that. You know, we're starting to open up some of those markets for financial services, and that's something that people find interesting. So, yeah, we've um, over the over the years we've had a number of um, interesting conversations with people. I expect those to continue, and I I expect you know I expect consolidation will continue to happen in this space. It's it's not new news, you know. It's been going on for a while. Um, I expect it to continue. Great. Well, definitely puts you in a nice position. But how how do you rate the UK these days? Like, is it still the best place to build a fintech company in your view? Uh, there's a question. I think the UK is great. Um, I think the the sort of the the three things that you need to get um, a business going, uh, particularly in fintech, are you know capital, talent, and some sort of uh, relationship with the regulator. I think there is obviously a, a huge amount of capital in in London and is attracted to London. I think the the, the most important thing probably is, is the talent base, and we have a you know a vibrant financial services sector, but also a vibrant technology sector with some of the you know some of the global leaders. A lot of the fangs choose to put their um, choose to put their local operations in in London, and that spits out a lot of great people. Um, so obviously the talent piece is is here, and then I think the the FCA as a regulator have been very open. Um, and willing to engage with the fintech sector in a you know in a in a balanced and, and fair way, which I think is important. But you know they've 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 been open to innovation happening in the space. So I think the sort of the three things that you need for the magic to happen have all certainly been in place. That said, um, you know we regulated out of Amsterdam. We have a great relationship with the Dutch Central Bank. Uh, some of the talent that's coming out of that part of the world, particularly with big companies like Booking and Adyen there. Um, and obviously Unilever and, and other guys on the digital marketing side means that I think London's as as the only and the obvious place to go has has probably you know has eroded somewhat. Uh, and then we've all got to wait and see what um, what happens with Brexit because the you know the the big thing about London was having access to the whole of the European market. Um, it looks like that's not going to be the case for certainly for financial services after the end of the year. So um, I think it's probably too early to tell what will happen um, on that. But I, I think 
you know, everyone is watching that very carefully and working out, you know, whether that will, not just for fintech, actually, for, for financial services in general and, and lots of other industries, whether that will actually have a, a sort of detrimental impact on London as a good place to build a business. I'm glad to see that, you know, some of the some of the really divisive rhetoric around, around you know, migrants and, and um, people coming from different parts of the world to, to, to the UK has seems to have seems to have gone a little bit. I think, um, you know, the, the pandemic has been a great leveler and, and people are less focused on the, you know, trying to solve things together. So, yeah, that, that gives me a bit of hope. Great. I can't believe we went 24 minutes without actually mentioning the pandemic. Uh, so I'm going to maybe conclude the, this interview by asking you, like, how has it affected you uh, in terms of the operations, but also the, the business in general? I mean, it, 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 we could deal with the first bit very quickly. I mean, it's, it's been um, it's 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 been very easy for us to to, to you know continue um, doing exactly what we do. Everything sits in the cloud. Um, you know, we've always had a quite a strong uh, work from home culture on on different days. So that's obviously been taken up a couple of notches. That's been um, you know, and it's been phenomenally good for our business as um as some of the traditional ways of sending money have been much harder or or, or impossible for people to do during a lockdown situation we've had a you know we've had our strongest results ever but that's probably not the worst bit that's worth thinking about um i think the i think the really difficult piece is for both people my customers on the send side and on the receive side these are incredibly tough times and you know, a lot of our a lot of our core customer base are in you know precarious economic situations, both sending and receiving. Um, oftentimes, the situation in the countries that we're sending money to is is significantly worse than it is in you know in some of the big European markets. You know, we've seen massive amounts of fiscal support into into all of the European markets in the US. The, the opportunity to do that in some of our core markets like the Philippines or India or Nigeria or Colombia, you know, that's just they just don't have the um, the financial wherewithal to, to support their economies and their jobs in the same way. And so, you know, I think obviously remittances remain an incredibly important part of fl the flow of funds into those economies. They're more important in recessions than ever because what you see is a lot of the other money that flows into those countries, foreign direct investment or aid, will start to dry up in, in those kind of situations. So remittances are more important than ever. And I tell, I tell people, you know, that's it's, you know, it's it's all very well wanting to build a big profitable company, which we actually do. But you know, if you're if you're in five to well twenty years time, you're putting your grandchildren on your knee and you're you're telling them what you did during the uh, the great pandemic, saying that you actually built a fintech that that made it cheaper and easier for for people to share money across borders, even when times were tough. I think is um, incredibly important, and we're trying to do as much as we can in terms of um, in terms of pricing support, in terms of um, promoting in times of you know just really continuing to drive work with our um, financial partners on the far end to continue to drive the cost of sending that money down um, because I think it's yeah it, it's it's tough times for for customers it's tough times for everyone you know but it's it's tough time for customers and I think we need to we need to reflect on that every day and, and build twice as hard in order to you know make a difference. Well, great to hear. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for uh, giving us uh, some of your time. Uh, looking forward to what happens next with Azimo, but also the other businesses you're involved with. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. And uh, yeah, have a nice rest of the week. No problems. Thank you.
And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it this time. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show, and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. I will talk to you again on Friday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sane, and do take care. Bye-bye.